Nick Helm and Nathaniel Metcalf's fan club on FUBAR Radio. We're off! We're off! It started! It started! This fucking magician's curtain has fallen down. Have you got your chat open, Nick? I've got my chat open, mate. Don't you worry about that, Nathaniel. Late to the party again today. I tell you, I've got genuine reason today. Uh, Why, do you not usually have good reasons? No. (laughs) (laughs) Today. Today I do. Your, oh, by the way, your hair looks absolutely incredible. Oh, thank you, thank you. I haven't, I haven't had a shower this morning, so I was thinking it might look a bit greasy, but it's, it's so pure hard. grease. Is that it's just grease? That's a, that's a grease, full on, full grease. In the fifties, they used to do that as style. That's what they called it in the fifties. Have you ever used um, brill cream? Have you ever used it? I mean, I was gonna. I watched Oh Brother Where Art Thou last night. And he's not using, he's using a pomade, which is basically like um, Dax Wax, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think it is, unless it's Brill Cream. Have I ever used Brill Cream? My granddad used to wear Brill Cream. And um, he didn't, he was very old, um, but he didn't lose his hair. He didn't start losing his hair until he was like in his 80s. That's good. I'm pr- I'm pretty sure the Brill Cream preserved it. <laughs> maybe, maybe. It's an it's... odd thing because it really is like, um, I've tried it. I got a big pot of it and I've still got it. And I quite like it, but it is like, it's almost your hair never not does not feel greasy. Do you know what I mean? It's it has not... like a real thing to it. It's grease. Yeah, it's, it um, yeah, but you're meant to comb it through and out so that the excess Brill Cream... It's just oh, sort yeah. of, it's an odd, um, it's an odd product. I think it's, I think it's an odd product. It's weirder yeah. than gel. Yes, it is. And, I, and it's weirder than hair wax. Um, but damn, it looks good, man. Thanks. It looks, it looks good. Um, and what's your t-shirt that you're wearing? It's the Beast Must Die. Uh, the Calvin Lockhart Peter Cushing movie. Right. Um, which I watched again recently, um, and I do like it a lot. It's kind of like um, it's a werewolf movie, but it's basically an action film. And I got it because in FOP, they had a T-shirt of it, and I thought it was mad that they had a T-shirt because I don't think of it as a particularly well-known film. So I couldn't resist not having one because it felt like, yeah, I've got to have it then. So it's something you like. the T-shirt? Is that the T-shirt that you posted the other day on Instagram saying, I'm watching the Beast Must Die yes. whilst wearing the Beast Must Die T-shirt? Right, right. Because I thought that maybe that was another film, and then I was thinking, do you just now buy T-shirts to go along with whatever film you're watching? <laughs> yeah. Is it a good film? I think so. It's very much in that tradition. Pick, pick Nathaniel, week on week. Pick your moments to drink. I drink during the songs. You drink Constantly. towards the tail end. You drink towards the tail end of a question to you. That's when you think of picking your mug up. Then you pick your mug up once I've finished the question, and then you take a drink. I've got used to the fact that we're making radio now. I've got used to it. I've stopped wearing trousers. Right? It's taken me two years to get to that point. Mind you, I wasn't wearing trousers in the studio, but they were different times. But but now you can't do that anymore. On. Can't do that anymore. 
because of COVID. But as soon as we're allowed back, <laughs> trousers down Fridays. That's what I call it. What, guys? What? Um, no, it is. I think it's a really good film. It's like a, a sort of action movie meets Agatha Christie meets kind of... It, it's like all people in a country house but it's got lots of, like, big action in it. They spent quite a lot of money in it, and so it's got helicopters and the, and the perimeter fence in this big sort of country estate, and one of the people in there is a werewolf who one by one is picking off the other members of the house, and it's also like a whodunit, like which one of them is the werewolf. But it's also oh. made at the time of kind of the exploitation movies, so they've cast this guy, Calvin Lockhart, who was in Cotton Comes to Harlem as, like, the main guy. So it also, like, it's sort of very English country house murder mystery with werewolves plus werewolves plus exploitation. That sounds incredible. And it's got Peter Cushing in it. Yeah, yeah. Michael Gambon, that... he's in it. Right. Before he's famous. Well, probably one of the stepping stones towards his great fame, Michael Gambon. Um, I don't know how much. Uh, I, don't know. I don't hear him talk about it that much. He's I one of the know, one of the main characters. How often are you listening to him talk? <laughs> yeah, very rarely. Very rarely. Occasionally, well, if, if I saw him interviewed, I'd probably give it a listen. I imagine he's got a lot some of the times, uh, good opinions. A lot, of the time, a lot of the times I'm seeing him talk, it's normally when he's in role playing a part, part in a production. So it's yeah, not, probably it's not really the time and. Is it to like give Harry Potter his sorting hat and then say, by the way, <laughs> hey, that reminds me though. I watched Check out that, Peace Must Die. I watched Go Andy on. Hopkins uh, interview that we were talking about last week. Oh right, okay, right. So let's get let's get to that because bonkers, right? Yeah, he's like a. I think he's like a. Well, bit... hang on, hang on, because let's let's build up to that because I think that that's a bit bonkers, right? <laughs> yeah, it was bonkers. <laughs> I think he is it, a like, bit bonkers, though, isn't he? In quite me, an I find him quite endearing still. It made, uh, no, not now. I mean, <laughs> I've, I've tried to watch him in several things, and I'm just like, nah, I'm all right. And, um, but, but sort of like on what you said, uh, you saw Peter Cushing. I didn't see this, but I went uh, round my friend um, Phil's house for an outdoor barbecue on Saturday. Mm-hmm. And he was talking about how how much he loved submarine movies, mm-hmm. and he mentioned a film that he saw. Shockwaves. No. What's Shockwaves? It's the one. Um, there's during the Second World War, some Nazis on a submarine get uh, in, in become infected and become zombies. And then in the seventies, the submarine emerges. So there's a submarine full of Nazi zombies. What? Hang on. I wasn't listening because um, I, I was thinking about what I was going to say. What did you say? <laughs> it's a film, Peter Cushing and uh, John Carradine. And it's from the 70s. And it's some zombies become infected. No, some Nazis become infected as zombies during the Second World War on a German U-boat. And so it sort of emerges in the 70s. But there's then a submarine full of zombies that were previously contained in this U-boat. Who are, are Nazis? Yeah, they're Nazi zombies. That that is an incredible idea for a film. Yeah, it sounds it sounds like one of them ones that 
shouldn't exist, but you go, I'm glad someone made that. It's almost like is all films good? really exist. It wasn't as good as the premise, but, you know, it is like, uh, it sells it to you on the concept. Right, okay. Okay. Hmm. So, okay, I'm getting a little list of things that I want to talk to you about here. Um, so anyway, you're at... So that sounds, that sounds good. Um, what, Submarine I'm movies, to, Peter Cushing. Yeah, I'm just trying to remember what this is, though. This one was called, <clears throat> that my friend Phil, it was called Goliath. I don't know that. Goliath Earth Awaits. Goliath Goliath Away. It's a TV movie. It's three hours long. Oh, yeah. Probably Uh, two minutes. I think it was shown in two halves, mate. Yeah, way ahead of me there. 1981, starring Christopher Lee, John Carradine, Robert Forster, Frank Gorshin, who's obviously the Riddler in the Batman TV series. John Ratzenberg is in it, but that's pre-cheers uh uh gene marsh who looks familiar and mark harman marsh yeah right it's called goliath awaits it's a submarine movie and basically the premise of it is that um it's like the sister ship to the titanic um gets in a poseidon adventure type accident where it turns upside down sinks to the bottom of the ocean, and then everyone lives in it. Everyone lives? Mm. And what, it's and just the continuing adventures of them living their lives? Living their lives on a, um, on a sunken uh, liner. How do they get Starring food and stuff? Starring Christopher, Christopher Lee. Well, I imagine there was enough tinned food. To, I mean, okay. Have you seen the size of the Titanic? <laughs> I haven't... Uh, I haven't, I haven't watched it. Have you? I'd watch it, it though. With that, no, I've never seen it. I'd watch it with that cast though. Yeah, I would. Um, but I just assumed because you were a massive Christopher Lee fan that you would have seen it. But well, the nice thing about people like that, like Christopher Lee, who made like a film every three weeks or whatever, is that you're re- you're probably never going to get to the end of his filmography. So you can keep oh yeah. Doing it. And also, I know. a lot of them are dreadful, aren't they? It's that you really are looking for the cream in uh, amongst them. The cream in the coffee. If you don't like coffee, um, then uh, <laughs> at least you've got a bit of cream. Um, sorry, I didn't mean to shame you in front of the audience there, Nat, by showing that you didn't know absolutely everything about Christopher Lee. Didn't mean to <laughs> do, certainly didn't mean to embarrass you there. Um, but um, <laughs> so there's all right, yeah. I think that that is the thing. I've I always I did a podcast about John Carpenter the other week, and um, but it wasn't about John Carpenter. Well, anyway, um, and um, yeah, I always ke- I've always kept a couple of Stallones and a couple of John Carpenters. Uh, I think I've pretty much seen all of Schwarzenegger and stuff, but I've kept like a few of my favourites. Um, un, uh, exp- do you know what I mean? There's, a, there's yeah. a few unseen John Carpenter films in my back pocket for when he dies, and he will. Uh, 
I can still go, hey, look. But, you know, it, uh, it, uh, it's something like Dark Star. Uh, and I just found out that he'd done another one. And, I, and to be fair, the only reason I haven't watched Dark Star is because I couldn't be bothered to watch it, really. Mm. It's always like, it's one of them, it's a student film. I think I've, I've kind of, like, ran out of... I've basically, I've only got shit to look look forward to. I've got Stallone starring in Capone, and he's not. He's like a heavy, and they've put him on the front cover because he's in it very briefly. But it's not really a Stallone film. So I've got like a few. Um, but with Christopher Lee, you've got like hundreds to pick from, haven't you? Yeah, so, yeah. And so I never feel it, like I need to watch them all, but like I will. But he is someone that it's always nice to go, what's this? It's sort of it adds points, doesn't it? Adds points to a film, whether you're going to watch them or not. Like that, a Goliath the Weight sounds like, yep, like them, like them, like them. Good cast, quite like the sound of it actually. I really only like available, only only available on YouTube. Um, oh yes, I I do very much like the sound of it. But uh, what Phil was saying was that. Um, that he's an absolute sucker for submarine movies. Anything with a submarine in it, he's all over it. And he thinks Hunt, Hunt for October is one of the best films ever made. Mm-hmm. And I'm similar to Phil where, um, you know, uh, I, I'm not, I, I'm not, I feel at my most content and happiest. I, I realised that when we were growing up, we used to go to uh, France, um, on the ferry for our summer holidays. And I realised that my favourite part of the holiday was being on the ferry. Um, and then later on, I've, I've been on some sort of like, I went on a, I went on a little river cruise when I went to Vietnam. And, um, and I've done kayaking and that sort of stuff. And I realised I'm not a great swimmer, um, but I really, really love the water, and I love uh, boats in a weird way. And now um, I've got like uh, my one of the reasons I bought my flat was because it's basically it's an empty husk that you can choose your own adventure in and build different floors and stuff, which is what all of the people. So I live in a building where everyone has kind of. Um, uh, built their own interiors to their own flats so no two flats are the same and so i i haven't done anything to mine but the people that had it previously the bedroom is like it's got quite a low ceiling and it's a little bit like it's um uh on a boat um and you know these are things that i find very relaxing and boats and stuff like that so it's not necessarily submarines but any film that has a particularly violent storm, sea storm in it, and then the uh, calm afterwards. You know, something like Castaway or Joe versus the Volcano is my ultimate favourite. I think that storm sequence in Joe versus the Volcano is very good. Swiss Family Robinson, The Admirable Crichton, um... You know, uh, films like films like that, where Robinson Crusoe, just like films where there is a sea a sea storm, uh, people on a boat having to um, uh, protect themselves under sailcloth 
from the violent lashings of rain. Favourite bit in any Indiana Jones. Is it, is it, do you like the storm raging and then it's a cut to next morning? I like the um. storm raging. I like the, I like, I like life on a boat, the lower decks. I like uh, that boat on, in Joe versus Volcano is gorgeous. The boat in Life Aquatic is, the, the, the submarine in Life Aquatic is gorgeous. Um, I love that, that sort bit, of Those big boats that go on the Mississippi and people, casino boats. Yes. I love Maverick that has the, I was the whole boat Maverick, sequence yeah, in it. I thinking of Maverick. Um, <laughs> I love, yeah, I love, I love a film set on boats and if it's got a storm in it, then even better. I like surviving, you know, the storm. I like um, the, um, uh, the, the rain whipping against the windows and the sails and i like um there's a bit in no way out where kevin costner saves a guy and then he becomes like an awarded uh naval officer and it's like just i love it i just i just, something about it i love it and i can watch that sort of stuff to go to sleep i would like to see a film that is entirely set on a boat during a storm um is anything like, does anything like that exist? All is lost. Yeah, I was going to say, what's that one? I didn't see that. All is lost. Oh my god, that's a that's Redford one, brilliant. right? Oh god, he's fucking brilliant. Robert Redford has always been brilliant, and All is Lost is just fucking absolutely incredible. I think did I you like... see? Um, did you see the Old Man with a Gun? Yes, I did. Yeah. Oh, I loved it. Gentle, um, but, but great. Yeah, yeah. There is one bit where that feels like the guy who directed it is a guy who did that Pete's Dragon film as well, isn't he? And it felt like he is... The director felt like a fan to me. Like he just loves Robert Redford so much and he loves his cast so much and it feels like he's making a film for Robert Redford. And there's that bit as well where it has... Um, was, Robert Redford, was Robert Redford in Pete's Dragon? Was he? He might have been. Was he? Was he the... Was, uh, so there was definitely there's definitely an old guy in Pete's Dragon, isn't there? Because originally it was Mickey Rooney, right? Yes. So, so Natalie, we don't know fuck all about this. Could you <laughs> please tell us whether Robert Redford was in Pete's Dragon? But it's also go. What's the what's the guy? The um, the singer bloke who's in Old Man with a Gun. Redford uh, was in Pete's Dragon. I knew it. I'm so fucking good at this stuff. Did he do Old Man with a Gun as well? Yeah, I think it's the same guy, I think. And he did that film, The Ghost, with Casey Affleck. He's kind of like from an indie Oh, the ghost story. Ghost, ghost, ghost story. story. He did um, that. I, do you know what? I've seen all of these films, and I did not know it was the same guy. I think the Pete's Dragon remake is actually not that bad. It was better than the original, in fact, which is mm. a rarity. Um, uh, of course, Pete's Dragon being my favourite dinosaur film. Uh, <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, I think... Yeah, Pete. I thought Pete Dragon was good. Did not know the same guy. Um, All is lost is like, yeah, um, this is like a showcase for a Hollywood actor that basically probably doesn't get the parts, and he's retired now. Old Man with the Gun is his last piece. I think Ghost Story, the Ghost Story, or a Ghost Story. Mm -hmm. um, I think that that is one of the most incredible, powerful, just surreal, odd experiences that i've had watching a film um 
I, I, that's, that film I must have seen three years ago. And I think I got it because the DVD was three quid with any purchase from FOP. And um, I've only, I think I've only seen it once, but it's really stuck with me. And I, it comes up all the time as a reference point for when I'm trying to, when I'm failing to make stuff, I always want to go back to ghost story. So I didn't know that was the same guy. That actually, that's weird. Do you know what I mean? When you followed someone's career yeah, by, by accident and you realise you like everything that they've done. How interesting. It, you're looking it up, are you? And it'll emerge that he didn't, hasn't made any of those films. Oh, no, apparently, no, that's what's come up. I was checking the guy, I was, I was looking up uh, Tom Waits, who was in Old Man with a Gun, because it's also he's got that weird scene in it, do you remember? Where he just has like a a really Tom Waitsy he just tells a story in the middle of a film and it mm. feels like it's one of those bits where you could imagine the director when they're assembling it going, There's no need to have that in it. But it's just obviously that he likes Tom Wade so much. It feels like he's such a fan of the cast in it. Like, I presume the guy, David Lowry, his name's on this. I, I, I think he's just like a movie fan, right? So it feels like he's making these films, but he's got such a kind of fondness for the cast and things. And it is just like... And I guess people he's sort of grown up with and these old movie stars. And that's one of the things I thought was quite... That I liked about it and I kind of responded to was just this thing that he's obviously... He's like a fan making these films. He doesn't feel like it's it's a film from that era, although it's referencing kind of 60s and 70s movies. There's an element to it which is really like... He's, he almost seems slightly overwhelmed by the cast, and he's a bit... Oh, I don't know. I feel like he's going for a thing. I feel like his films, now that I am aware that he is the one thing... They're like, uh, you know, the, the connecting tissue. They're like meditations on certain subjects where there is a story, but it's not really that concerned with telling the story as fast as possible. It's more about an experience. An old man with a gun is about a guy coming to the end of his career as a bank robber. He does it because mm. he loves it. And you've got Robert Redford in there. But it's also sort of like... Um, the Wild Bunch, do you know what I mean? Where he's taking a generation of film actors out for one last kind of... Oh, exactly, uh, that's what I mean. For, for one last heist. And it's kind of like um, the, the story of the film is the story of, of the making of the film, is the story of the actors. And he's like going, here we are, we're all together. This, we may not get another opportunity. Yeah, but and I think Tom that's Waits, what you get with Tom Waits gets people. a Tom Waits... Yeah, but Tom Waits gets a monologue, and I don't feel like he's overwhelmed. I feel like he's doing them a service. He's doing them. Um, yeah, he's doing it's them though, isn't it? It's 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 a, it's from a fanish perspective. It's not from. Um, it feels like if like the people of that generation, I think, wouldn't make that film. I think it's a good thing. I think it's that they almost see would... people differently if you're not from that generation. Like, I think the people of the... The directors of the 60s and 70s probably see um, Robert Redford as, like, sure, he's the actor we work with. Whereas I think it takes a generation for it to be... for people to sort of appreciate them more on a kind of iconic level. And so they've got a sort of... There's a sort of distance from them that, that is, like, they sort of see them as slightly more special, I think. I think it's that way now that... You know, like the Star Wars films and are in the hands now 
of people who grew up watching it, uh, for no, better or worse. I, I think the Star Wars films now are, <laughs> are in the hands of people that don't particularly like Star Wars. <laughs> That, sure. never, that, that didn't grow up watching them, perhaps. But I watched, like, a film I really enjoyed last year, uh, The Connection might not be obvious, it was the uh, Bad Boys for Life. And yes. I think it's the best Bad Boys film because it's obviously made by, I looked it up and went, this is so much like richer than the other two. And then I realised it's like the people, the directors of it were these two guys who are like, they're about like 28 or something. I think they're two brothers. And you just think, oh, they're kids that have grown up with them. So it's almost like they're making a film that's like a fan film for bad boys. Do you know what I mean? It's got that distance to it. But I think you're right. Like like Sam Peckinpah, when he's making The Wild Bunch, even though he died young and he's probably older than a lot of that film generation, he's looking at those actors as like the guys who were probably on screen when he was a kid, right? It's that sort of, and it's like we talk when we talk about Once Upon a Time in the West, it's Sergio Leone looking at these sort of icons of yesteryear and sort of they know what they're, they know the sort of power of those actors. They get what, what, why they're good and what they've seen them in. And there's a nostalgia to it. Um, whereas I think, and I think that's what's quite nice about, I'm, I'm certainly not, I don't mean it's a criticism as the old man and the gun. I mean it like it's quite, it's very fond of the people on screen in a way that feels like, oh, it's, it's a young man's, yeah, it's a young man's film about older people, I think. Hmm. I'd, I still don't agree. I feel like he, I don't, I, I feel like he is, if you compare it to, if he did do a ghost story, did he do David Larry? Yeah. Um, then he makes those sorts of films. I think he's probably uh, from the wrong generation. And I think he probably feels more uh, at ease with people like, not like he's in the same calibre, but he probably feels more at ease with that generation of filmmaking than all of the... I don't... Film has become so much of a business and so much of like a wham bam entertainment system and i and there's always great i always loved blockbusters i always liked um you know waiting for christmas to see what came out on tv at christmas and going to the cinema you know i love i love all of that stuff but i also really the films that i go back to uh kind of like the old old classics really mm. and um like over and over again um and uh i think that he feels like he's a filmmaker that's out of step with kind of you know so if you if if you talk about that tom waits monologue thing kind of like you've got tom waits give him a monologue and it comes in the middle of the film it's like, he doesn't really say that much does he tom waits and then he has no. stuff like this and it's, it's kind of like one thing that's that's his scene, isn't it? Whereas if you look at something like Desperado and Quentin Tarantino comes in, and he has his he has his joke, and I love Desperado, and I I love that Quentin Tarantino scene, but it is the most self indulgent piece of 
you know, any film that I've ever seen, right? Where Quentin Tarantino literally comes in because he's Robert Rodriguez's mate, sits down, tells a joke, and then gets shot in the very next scene. And then he's not in it again, right? And it's kind of like, well, we need someone as a bag man. Quentin Tarantino turned up on the day. Gone, if you've got a joke, maybe you could tell a joke. So he tells the joke, <clears throat> and they do it. It's great. But you could cut that easy. Sure. To make to make room for the to make room for the film, but it's this it's this moment which it doesn't even it doesn't even make the effort to blend it into the film. It's like this. Oh. It's it's like this. Desperado is great, but it's literally you when you're watching it, you're hyper aware of the budget and everyone's schedules. Like yeah. Danny Trejo, he's available for two days. Uh, we got to shoot him out by lunch. Right, he's got a really cool character. He's dead in three scenes. Uh, Quentin Tarantino is dead in one scene. You know, Cheech Marin, he's dead in five scenes. Mm. You know, uh, and it, it's kind of like, it, it, you're, you're hyper-aware that he's shooting around people's shitters, and it's kind of like, you've got this Quentin Tarantino scene, which is completely unnecessary, self-indulgent, but it works in the context of that film. When you look at the Tom Waits thing, it's like you're using Tom Waits as an actor, but it feels like it feels fine to have that. It doesn't feel the same as that. I don't know. I for me, it feels very similar. I enjoyed it, but it feels like like almost that they get to it, and he's like, oh, "I just want to have more." Do you know what I mean? I want more Tom Waits in it, and I, I I get that, and it feels like it's got the feeling of a bit of a deleted scene. Like if you saw it, you go, I can see why that wouldn't be in the film. I like that it's in it. I enjoyed it. But it doesn't feel necessary. But I think that's because he's he's got such a fondness for these people. I think Quentin I feel Tarantino's, like. You know, I, the, I, 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 sorry, I feel like that with the Tom. I feel like he's constructed this character and he's giving this character a moment to shine in a film that's not particularly uh, worried about zipping through it and pace and story yeah. and plot. Whereas with Quentin Tarantino. The whole film stops. He tells a joke almost directly to the camera, and then yeah, it, I guess it, it I guess that is it. it. Yeah, Desperado is a very fast-paced film, and the old man with the gun isn't. Um, and I guess that's the difference. But what I mean, but is, Quentin I Tarantino, but Quentin Tarantino doesn't have a character in that film, right? He no. is Quentin Tarantino, right? But, Whereas but Tom Waits doesn't have a character until that scene. Do you know what I mean? That's it. He's he's ba- he's barely used in it. He's really like a background character you see popping up. It's almost like that's in there to be like, ah, oh, we've got to have Tom Waits do a bit. We've got to have one of the improvised Tom Waits scenes. Because I think without it, he would be kind of like a background character. He doesn't sure. have that. He's not really developed that much. But I like the film and I like the cast. And when he shows up, it's fun that he gets his, like, again, it probably isn't self-indulgent because you enjoy it. But... It's yeah, it's it's a nice scene, but it didn't feel like like if it wasn't in it, I think you you probably would think, Wow, Tom Waits didn't have a lot to do. But I it wouldn't I think it adds totally to the tone of the film. Whereas the Quentin Tarantino I know that you didn't bring up Quentin Tarantino, but I think it's an interesting parallel. It's like the Quentin Tarantino scene is essentially it's a dialogue track on the Desperado soundtrack. Whereas Tom Waits thing is kind of like this guy doesn't do much, and then all of a sudden he has this monologue, and it kind of like I think um, 
I don't know. I don't, I don't remember we both, the film that well. We both, we both liked the film. It was so interesting. <laughs> oh, yeah, but I think we liked the film because of, because of moments like that. I don't feel like it brought me out of the film, whereas the Quentin Tarantino thing, it is one of the reasons I like this Borrelo. Not, not a huge reason, but it's one of the reasons. And it does bring you out of the film at the same time. Yeah. We've got to play a song, Nick. We do have to play a song. Let's play a song. Nick Helm and Nathaniel Metcalf's fan club on Fubar Radio. And we're back. Yeah. Um, in the in the break there, I just wanted to say about Bad Boys for Life. Um, Bad Boys has got like the Prince and the Pauper p- plot, right? Yes. Where, where you've got M- Mike Lowry, who's the um, uh, Will Smith character, and he's like the bachelor. Mm-hmm. And then you've got Martin Lawrence, who's the family man. Who's the worrying family man, and then you you know, who's got like the whole world on his shoulders. And Will, he doesn't care. He drives fast cars, and then they've got to swap. And that's not really the plot of Bad Boys, but you can see that's what the starting off point was. It's a weird film when you think of it like that, because you go, mm. the plot is so straightforward. Yeah, Michael Bay has made it the most complicated thing ever. You go, it's literally two guys swapping identities. That's all it is, and that. That virtually has no payoff in the entire film. Fine. Bad Boys 2, I wouldn't be able to tell you what the plot of that was, but I think it's just this huge... It's like this huge, unwieldy kind of, like, bit where there's one bit where um, they go to a morgue and rats fuck and they're looking at, you know, fake breasts on dead women. It's hot. You know, there's one bit when they go to, like, arrest a drug den and they shoot it all up. There's one bit when they're throwing cars out the back. There's one bit where Martin Lawrence is on ecstasy trying to solve a crime. It's like, it's like they've just gone, fuck it. And it's like Bad Boys has one sitcom plot. Yeah, uh, that they that they mishandle. <laughs> Bad Boys Two has got twenty, like not even sitcom plot. Some of the most disgusting things you've ever. Just like not like disgusting to look at, but it just makes you feel sad inside. You know, <laughs> um, it's got like so many elements in it that you kind of like, go, all right, fine. And um, what I think works well about Bad Boys for Life is they take it back to basics where they've gone. Let's make the sequel that Bad Boys really probably deserved, which is you meeting up with these two guys, and it's like it's about it's like goes back to like a sitcom thing. Yeah, uh, they're coming to terms with their age, and this kind of comedy that's coming out of that. They're dyeing their hair, and <laughs> you know, it's kind of like it takes it back. I, I think you know, it's the second best Bad Boys film, but I really, yeah. I think it's the best Bad Boys film. Um, I, think it, I, think I really love. I really love that first one. But maybe you're right. I haven't seen it. I haven't seen the other two. I don't think I'll ever watch Bad Boys two again. But Bad Boys one, I grew up watching that, and I absolutely loved it. Uh, it was like Beverly Hills Cop on acid. It was like. It was, <laughs> you're right. It was, the second one is really. Horrible, really. It almost makes it weirder that it's got Will Smith in it, who is almost the sort of ultimate sort of American hero kind of guy in this film, which is really inappropriate. Like, proper kind of... Yeah, he does, like, rap albums for eight-year-old birthday parties. And it's (laughs) kind of like, yeah, great. Uh, And then he's, like, in Bad Boys, where he's, like, shooting holes in the heads of heroin dealers. And... (laughs) 
Yeah, I always, I always had it in my head. It, like whenever he does, when Bad Boys Three was announced, I was like, but Will Smith won't be doing Bad Boys Three, will he? Because mm. does, doesn't he like not swear anymore or something like that? Doesn't he have some sort of like thing in his contract where he doesn't swear? But no, he's still. I've just got it in my head that he is like a family Disney entertainer. Mm. But, but that uh, kind of thing happened with. Um, there was that thing, wasn't there, where Eddie Murphy, who was apparently going to go back to stand-up last year, pandemic year, and then it didn't happen. There was always that thing, wasn't there, that Eddie Murphy can't ever do stand-up again because he spent 20 years making Disney movies, and suddenly he's like, it's you can't do that anymore. But I think the world sort of changed that you probably can now. It's probably everyone's a bit, perhaps a bit smarter. Well, Ben Williams was doing that though, wasn't he? Yeah, the, yeah, you're right. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so I guess, it, I guess, it, I guess it's fine. I don't know whether Eddie Murphy could come out with Raw and then <laughs> and then do kids films, but I mean, he's done uh, Dolomite is my name. Um, I mean, there's loads of that's like a hard Eddie Murphy movie, isn't it? Mm. Um, so it's kind of like. I, get, I, I think I think Eddie Murphy's sort of like slightly different because he started he started off being absolutely foul mouthed. Yeah. He started off doing sketches on live TV, then he was foul mouthed like forty eight hours, and then he weirdly the blip in his career is twenty years of kids films, <laughs> and then he goes back to it. You know, whereas Will Smith was always kids. Yeah, it was always like the reason we all know him is because mm. of Fresh Prince and uh, and Summertime and Boom Shake the Room. And but Fresh Prince kid- even is like a sitcom who whose like main audience at the time were like twelve year olds. Like you can't yeah. think of most most sitcoms weren't aimed at or watched by that age group. But Fresh Prince was like its main audience were probably twelve to fourteen year olds. <laughs> Fresh Prince is a lot better, and I think there's a lot, you know, a lot more talent behind it. But it it was in the same bracket as Safe by the Bell, mm. where it was just, it was like a, you know, I think if Safe by the Bell is like your gateway drug into your gateway show into Fresh Prince of Bel Air, which didn't seem like, but Fresh Prince of Bel Air was definitely. More of kind of like uh, family. No, no, I wouldn't even say family entertainment. I would say Cosby Show, family entertainment. We watched that. Ironically, we watched that as a family. Yes. You know, and that was like, and there was like grown-up stuff in that. Whereas Fresh Prince of Bel Air was what six o'clock on BBC Two, just after yeah. kids' TV finished, when you needed that extra hit. It was like not yet. No, don't make us go to adult TV yet. And then it was like another half hour you can squeeze yeah. out of it. It was. That was always it was, an interesting yeah. slot. That wasn't it. That slot was almost used for that purpose as a sort of weird, like, bridging point between adult TV and kids' TV. It was like the teenage slot, and and maybe it was kind of there for young fam, you know, people with young kids to sort of like shut them up and have dinner. I don't know, um, but yeah, fucking hell, Bad Boys Two. Loads has been said about that, but I mean, it's it's really unpleasant and a weird film. Uh, but um, I just find it so sort of like. When you can see what the film is on paper and you can see 
how they failed to satisfactory um, uh, execute it. You know, you see bad boy. Bad boys is literally changing places, but but they fuck it <laughs> so badly that it's only retrospectively in hindsight that you look back and you go, oh, it's that, isn't it? That's what they were aiming at. But anyway, I think Bad Boys for Life probably tells. <laughs> It's probably the only one of the three that tells a coherent story. And I can't remember what it was. I fell asleep twice during the film, uh, in the <laughs> cinema. Very tired. Um, but you were also talking about um, Dracula, funnily enough, in the interval. Um, I had to... I was... <laughs> I have had, like, this itch to scratch for a long time where I've really wanted to see Dracula. Like, I've really wanted to re-watch Bram Stoker's Dracula. Francis Ford Coppola's Bram Stoker's Dracula, as Nathaniel would say. Uh, so I've really wanted to re-watch it, because in my head, I think, you know, it's uh, sort of bonkers and crazy and all this kind of stuff. And I um, uh, started watching it with my girlfriend. <laughs> and she made me switch it off, because she said it's the shittest thing she'd ever seen. Ever seen. Um, ever seen. And as if to disprove her, I showed her the trailer for um, Dana Carvey's Master of Disguise. <laughs> and said, do you think Dracula shit? Uh, check out Master of Disguise. <laughs> and the trailer on Amazon isn't a trailer. It's a, it's a scene. They just show a scene. It's the scene where Pistachio Disguise, <laughs> as we all know, <laughs> Pistachio Disguise as played by Dana Carvey, uh, it's, it's a famous scene where he ends up uh, spilling pasta over everyone's head in the Italian restaurant that he works in. And then they've all got their, they've all got spaghetti on their heads. And then uh, James Brolin, uh, star of uh, <laughs> Capricorn One, <laughs> Amityville Horror, <laughs> uh, Barbara Streisand, and um, uh, what's my favourite, Westworld. Uh, comes along and plays Pistachio uh, Disguise's dad. Uh, great, great part for an ageing actor. That's why you give Tom Waits the monologue, because the alternative being, being James Brolin in Master of Disguise. <laughs> you just turn up for work every day and have a smile on your face. I like um, that you said they haven't cut a trailer, they've just shown a scene. But the whole film is like 70 minutes. There's nothing. <laughs> the, the film is 65 minutes. And then they is it 15, 65 minutes? The, the film is 65 minutes and they had 15 minutes of outtakes at the end. Yeah, um, there's like the, the end credits are about like 15 minutes of the film. But that's, yeah, I mean, I showed it. So it wasn't like a trailer of the best bits, <laughs> <laughs> um, which I think Master of Disguise uh, has a couple of quotes that you can you know, adopt in everyday life from the trailer, but don't, you know, but the film, you know, but rather than the trailer, it's a natural scene where you can actually see, you know, that there isn't any uh, uh, direction to it and there isn't, you know, it's, it's terrible. The scene is terrible. But um, she still preferred it <laughs> to Dracula. Now, if going into Dracula, you were not aware that it was Francis Ford Coppola. How do you think you would feel about Dracula? I watched it. If if you go into it being told 
for instance, there's Batman Forever era Joel Schumacher. Hmm. How does that make you... Does that change your opinion on Dracula? Because I definitely... I, I like how... It's certainly a lot more camp than I thought it was. It's certainly a lot more operatic than I remembered it being. In my mind, it was that Keanu Reeves has a bit of a... Um, it's, it's tonally a bit all over the place. Tom Waits and Keanu Reeves are a bit kind of like, okay. But everything else is fairly consistent. In re-watching the, only, the first 25 minutes, which is all I was allowed... <laughs> Um, I was actually fine with switching it off by that point. I felt like I'd seen enough. But I yeah. reckon it was... I think I saw it probably on video when it came out. So what is it? It was huge. It was, it was absolutely huge. I, it was an 18 at the cinema, so I didn't see it at the cinema, but I was yeah. really into comic books at the time. And um, I remember, there were, I, and I always used to, I don't think it was called Waterstones, though. What was it called before Waterstones? Dylan's? Dylan's. Dylan! I went into, that's Predator. Um, <laughs> Dylan's, you son of a bitch. He should have done the advert. <laughs> should have done the advert. It was Dylan's. Uh, was it Dylan's, though? Oh, I don't know. Wasn't Dylan's more of like a stationer's? Books, etc. No, it was like, it was, it was like, anyway, I used to go in and I used to read the comic books in the shop and I used to read all of the movie books as well, which I loved those movie books, mm. which was sort of like, it was like, a, like an annual, only it was for a specific, so it's like the making of Last Action Hero, the making of Batman Returns. I've still got a load, I've got those in fact. <laughs> uh, and there was the making of Dracula and you'd go in and have all of the production um, art and everything like that. So I, um, I was too young for it. I think I remember when I saw it, I was a bit like, well, not for me. <laughs> but I've since grown up and appreciated it. And a large part of that is Francis Ford Coppola. But now I think I've gone right the way through and I'm now depreciating it again. <laughs> I think when I saw it in 92, even though Francis Ford Coppola was such a big name then, I reckon Dracula was probably the first film of his I actually ever saw. think. <laughs> Um, certainly knowing it was him and thinking of him as like a big director. And I think people, I guess people that probably watched Apocalypse Now probably hated Dracula. It was probably seen as a real, like, this guy's absolutely lost it. But it really appealed to me at 12 or 13. And when I, watching it again and again and getting older, I found it sillier and sillier. But then I would more, then I almost had a better appreciation for films that were silly and i think i like i like how silly it is and i still enjoy that and it feels like he is doing something right i mean it all starts off you've got all those um like puppet theater and it does feel like you're watching something like everyone sort of encouraged to really overdo it and it's so sort of big that I really... And it's just like, it looks great, doesn't it? All the sort of set design and costumes all look great. I and think that... it looks great. I think it genuinely... I think it looks beautiful. I think it is beautiful. I think the uh, shadow puppet stuff that they do in it is great. One of the things that he did with it was, um, I think they had like a special effects house behind it and they couldn't do what Francis Ford Coppola wants. So I think he got Roman Coppola to do it. Um, and basically all of the special effects in 
Bram Stoker, Francis Ford Coppola's Bram Stoker's Dracula, are either in camera or of the era. So, right. so um, whenever Dracula was set was just about the birth of cinema. And so Francis Ford Coppola wanted to use techniques that were around in the turn of the century, late 1800s, early 1900s. So a lot of that stuff would be like George Melier or, or uh, the Lumiere brothers. Um, that where, makes a lot of sense. Where so that, and at one point they even go to the cinema, and I think there's some sort of zoetrope, which is sort of like an American zoetrope, which was Francis Ford Coppola's production company. But basically, so what I think he's also done there is he's obviously not going to make a silent movie, but I think that the performance is... Oh, my Siri has set off. Um, uh, it's, it's not a silent movie, but what it is is he's got people to sort of like act in an operatic way. Yeah. That is... One foot in 1992 and one foot in 1892. You know, yeah. he's kind of... Um, and maybe there was some sort of centenary when Dracula came out where it was kind of celebrating uh, 100 years of cinema or something like that. Um, but I think that the acting style is bonkers when you look at it. And then if you actually try and think, why is he doing that and what is he doing? I think it's kind of a tribute to the silent movie actors. If you watch, I, I still think the behind the scenes making of, of Dracula is one of the most entertaining. We should do a compilation of behind the scenes making of and yeah. entertaining oddities because that's there. Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves is there. Yeah. Um, uh, these behind the scenes things where Gary Oldman is basically talking about having a memory book of pictures of his son that he looks at every time he has a dramatic scene and you're kind of like going, are you imagining awful things happening to your son? <laughs> it's just all like, it's just like, it's bonk, it's, 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 it's so weird. And then when you actually see Gary Oldman's performance, like Amy was just like, switch this shit off. Do you know what I mean? It was just yeah. like, what the fuck is he doing? And I was just like, well, he's doing a thing. You're either with it or you're against yeah. it. And she was... Uh, I think uh, there's an, when it came out, I think there was a, a sense of people going, hey, this isn't, your, this isn't like Hammer Horror. This is like new Dracula. And, and when I watch it now, I think, you know, it isn't a million miles away from Hammer Horror at all. And it's no. 30 years later. Absolutely. And it feels very much inspired by Hammer Horror. Almost, uh, it's like a gaudy version of what maybe Sleepy Hollow was, which was yes, a Hammer yeah. tribute. It's, it, it is sort of... Um, it is it is sort of odd. Um, I was going to say something else, but I can't remember what that was now. Um, but anyway, uh, oh, we've got to do fan mail. We should talk about Anthony Hopkins next week, maybe, then. Annie Hopkins, next week. Tune in, guys. Tune in. Annie Hopkins, Hopkins special. The Anthony With our Hopkins. special guest, Anthony Hopkins, in the second hour. Natalie? Uh, sort that out. Um, oh, God, but it is such a weird film. Like, Batman Forever is not far off, you yes. know. Oh, I, I, that's what I was going to say. I just do think it's funny that it's called Bram Stoker's Dracula. This is the definitive telling of Dracula. And it's still not really Bram Stoker's Dracula. It's kind of like, has there ever been a faithful adaptation of either Dracula or Frankenstein? 
Yeah, because well, the ones that the ones that are always claiming it's the most faithful adaptation yet. It's like when they did the um, when Mark Gattis did Dracula uh, a couple of years ago on TV oh, with yeah. Dolly Wells in it. It's like um, when they did that, it was just kind of like I was so excited about seeing a faithful adaptation of Dracula, and then it was like, no, 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 we're just uh, we all know Dracula. It's just like yeah, we all kind of know Dracula. I mean, even Scooby Doo's done Dracula, but. I don't think there's ever been one faithful adaptation of it because everyone just assumes that, oh, everyone knows Dracula. Just do one version where you just do it properly. You know, it's like all of the DC kind of reboots of Dra- of uh, Batman and Joker where they're all coming out with sort of like this sort of like edgy interpretation. You go, just do it properly once. At the just time, do it once. At the time, I remember Christopher Lee being interviewed and they were saying like, would you play Dracula again? He goes, well, I'd do it if it was the... the the, the proper adaptation of Dracula. And that's the only way I'll do it. And I was thinking, no one's going to ask you now. No one's going to ask you now. You're, you're 70 or whatever he was at the time. <laughs> well, they might have done. I mean, who knows? Anyway, fan mail. Mm-hmm. Ah, dear Nick and Nathaniel, very much enjoyed the Citizen King chat, particularly the bits about William Carson and Alfred Hitchcock. Shadow of a Doubt is tremendous. What did you make of its sort of reinvention in Stoker? I thought it was great. I recently watched a documentary, Spine Tingler, the William Castle story, which, like his book, is an absolute joy. He mentioned the Castle-type character in Matinee. Would definitely be nice to hear a bit more Joe Dante chat. I'm sad he's not done any films for a while. Hopefully this is adequate fan mail. Apologies, if not Lucy. If not Lucy. Oh, hang on a minute. Uh... What did you make of its sort of reinvention in Stoker? Uh, I thought it was great. Well, definitely be nice to hear a bit more Joe Dante chat. I'm sad he's not done any films for a while. Um, Lucy, I think you... I think that might have You've been... you nailed the, it. I think that's the best bit of fan mail we've ever had. I think that that is absolutely great. Um, if you write in with your address, Natalie will send you something. That was brilliant. Um, <laughs> um, so, so I've not seen... Do you know what? It's never occurred to me that Stoker is a riff on Shadow of a Doubt. I'll have to rewatch that. I've not seen the documentary Spine Tingler. I've I'm all that. over it. Really or is. maybe I have. Maybe I have then. I've seen something about William Castle... I've read the book, is the thing. I did the heavy lifting and actually read something. Uh, it's, uh, and what's the... I prefer documentaries. Um, and I sort of like Joe... I really do like Joe Dante, but um, I, I just... Well, again, maybe we're going to it next week, because I saw for the first time ever, I'd never seen it this week, The Howling. You've never seen The Howling? Never seen it. Watched it last week. Oh, mate, it's not as good as American Werewolf in London, is it? Nope. <laughs> it's, oh, fuck me. It's so disappointing. Everyone's like, oh, it's so tongue-in-cheek. You go, apart from a character being called Hitchcock or something, it's kind of, it's not that tongue-in-cheek. You know, do you know what I mean? It's like, it's a straight werewolf film. Um, okay, well, let's go, well, maybe let's try. We won't think about it too much because that defeats the oh. purpose of doing the show. So but, a, a, but maybe we'll go... Hopkins, uh, The Howling... Next week, special. Joe, Joe, Joe Dante, Anthony Hopkins. Isn't The Howling got Christopher Lee? Is that The Howling 2? Howling 2. Not seen that. And when Christopher Lee did Gremlins 2, he apologised to Joe Dante and said, I'm sure it was going. 
<laughs> I'm so sorry I did the howling, bro. <laughs> Hi, Nick and Nat. Nick, I saw both of your beautiful shows in Edinburgh 2019. Nat, I haven't seen your comedy yet, but we'll absolutely flock there once lockdown is done. Or come to stalk you at the cinema if you let me know which one. Don't do that. My I'm question is... Do you find yourself seeking out new experiences or going back to comforts as far as film viewing goes? Palm Springs has been my best new experience and Back to the Future, my comfort food. What are yours? Cheers, Alan. Yes. Um, lots of films, I think. Uh, I have like I have a yearly I have a yearly cycle of films. And stuff like Big Trouble in Little China, uh, Tango and Cash. I always do that as a double bill. Because it's Kurt Russell doing the same character with varying degrees of success, um, and uh, Joe versus a volcano, a kind of accidentally three amigos. I accidentally watch these films every year, um, and then um, and then I. But I'm always on the lookout for like a new, my new favourite film, and those are the ones that I really kind of get excited about when I see a film and I'm just it knocks my socks off and I'm like the last detail where I can now literally it's a new film that I can put into my conversations with people and I can go oh my goodness and and discovering someone like Hal Ashby that you know I've always known Harold and Maud I've grown up with that film but like to actually go hang on a minute why haven't I watched any of their other films and then you actually start exploring a filmmaker whose entire body of work is in front of you and you can kind of take your time with it. And it's not swayed by, you know, uh, fads or trends or who's hot right now. It's like literally there's a body of work right in front of you and it's fairly solid. That's an exciting thing for me. Hmm. I think I have, yeah, tons. Um, but, yeah, there are, there are some I'm always surprised I've seen really regularly. I guess lots of... Hammer movies, I guess I kind of go back to. They're like comfort food. Back to the Future, I suppose, is probably one that I watch a lot. Uh, although I haven't for the last couple of years. I feel like I've almost seen it too many times. So I'm having a bit of time off with that. But I future. do love it. I do love it. Back to the Future? Yeah. Yeah, I think like, the last time I saw it, I was just like, oh, do you know what? Uh, it's just a breaking point. I'm not going to go back there for a bit. Um, but, yeah. Uh, and also, I really, really fucking enjoyed Citizen Kane and Justice League. So there's something that's new and something that's old. And I've thought about those films almost every day since I've seen them. Um, and I'm looking forward to uh, City of the Dead. Is that what it's called? Army, Army of, of the Dead. Dead. Army of the Dead. Which isn't the same as Army of Darkness, guys, so stop writing in about it. Um, they haven't. So, uh, right, okay, let's have a break. Then, and this is their so, favourite song. So fucking, so fucking excited about our next guest. He's, he's, he's almost collectively got me through lockdown. So <laughs> let's, let's do it. Nick Helm and Nathaniel Metcalf's fan club on Fubar Radio. And we are, and we're off, we're off, we're off. We're back live in the studio. We're not live. Uh, pre-recorded on a Wednesday, and we're not in the studio. I'm in my uh, office. I call it an office. Nat is in his washroom, uh, and here we are. We're joined live in the studio <laughs> by one of my most uh, one of my most exciting guests that we've had uh, in a very long time. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, put your hands together for uh, Mr. Paul Sinner. Hello, how are you doing? 
I'm very well. I'm in my office that doubles up as living room, kitchen, dining area. It's so it's so blank behind you. Uh, If I was to describe it to our listeners at home, it's just a blank wall. It's just a wall, yes. Well, there you go. Um, (laughs) Thanks, thanks for coming on, Paul. Uh, How are you doing? Um. I don't think anyone really knows the answer to that question anymore, do you? Who, who knows? How I'm I've got no idea. I have my second vaccine today, so that's good. Um, I've got my first one. I've got my first one after the show. Um, that's quite a declaration of fitness, isn't it? That uh, they waited this long for you to have your first vaccine. That's kind, uh, of, that's kind of a compliment. I don't know how it works. I, th- I assumed that, you know, they, was gonna, they were going to forget me. Because, uh, Nathaniel, you've had yours, right? I had mine, but I think I had, like, I think I got one weirdly ahead of time. I, I must be on a special list, but I'm not really sure what, what might be wrong with me that has uh, given me that privilege. But I, I got mine in March. It might be the same as me, which is you know lots of doctors. Um, <laughs> it, it, it might be the same thing I have. <laughs> but I had a lot of people come out, come out of the woodwork going, oh, I can sort one out for you. I can sort one out for you. Um, but, um, yeah, I'm very pleased to have the second vaccine because it means I can just do all the things I haven't been doing for the last year, like um, breathing fresh air, uh, getting out of bed, uh, that, that, that sort of exciting activity. Uh, I've just been quizzing for the last, quizzing online for the last year, um, how does how does how do you mean? How does that work for fun or for to keep your hand in the game or to uh, to make money? Two out of three ain't bad, as they say. There's no money in it <laughs> at all. There's very much for fun and to keep my hand in the game. And um, without wishing to bore anyone about the world of quizzing, it's the one world that got better as a result of lockdown. It got actually. Mate, lot- we want to know all about quizzing. Oh, okay. Well, it's, it's the world that got better in the sense that we now play against everyone in the world as opposed to everyone in our area. So, I, sure. um, and you can just happen just like that. I, I, can, I can say to somebody in San Francisco, do you want to come into my Zoom room and we'll go through some questions? And they can. It's, it's, it's become a global thing thanks to Zoom. And I mean, what were any of us thinking not having Zoom in the first place before lockdown? Were we insane? Because it's crazy, isn't it? The thought of actually having, and I don't live that far, but the thought of actually having to go into Soho and have a meeting is kind of like, of course I'm not going to do that. (laughs) Of course it's going to, you've got to be fucking kidding. You know, uh, it's it's Zoom all the way now. But it's it's so weird. You've got to be really addicted to Pret-a-Manger to uh, actually crave the the Soho meeting lifestyle. (laughs) There There were some things that happened at the beginning of lockdown that didn't stick, like house party. You know, um, I, where, I, went uh, I went to one. Some kid from Lincoln University, uh, who I went drinking with after a, 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 a quiz, uh, he invited me to his 20th or 21st house party. And it was genuinely insane. Um, it was just people having nervous breakdowns on, on, on cocktails of uh, various things that may or may not have been legal, all have, but all doing it on their own. Um, <laughs> and, on. Online, on their phones? On their phones, on Zoom. Uh, and it was, just re- it was just unmissable stuff. Uh, <laughs> you realise that the young people these days 
are doing things you never even heard of. When I, when I mean, I'm, I'm, fif- I'm 51 now. Where am I? Where am I? 51. I'm 51 now, and uh, it's, it's fair to say that the student life was very different to my life in medical school. Uh, but uh, were, Perhaps that's why they were there. They perhaps wanted you to, just in case any of them had some kind of bad experience, there was someone on hand who'd be able to give them some advice medically. Well, they'll be completely wrong. It's been a long time since I've had any technique or expertise uh, in, in medically. I mean, I've not been a doctor since 2007, and as any quiz that's ever quizzed with me in the last 10 years, well, I've forgotten it all. It's really embarrassing because medicine is the one profession they expect you to still remember everything. Otherwise, right. oh, my God, the doctor didn't know that. But we all get questions wrong about our profession all the time. Um, it's just the same I thing. Don't. At least I'm out, so I can't kill anyone by getting questions about medicine wrong. <laughs> sure. But Fine. certainly when I'm, on a fl- when I'm on a flight and someone says, is there a doctor on the flight? Uh, I suddenly start snoring quite, um, <laughs> quite vociferously. But you're so bored of getting that question? No, I just don't want to be bothered. I don't, God, want, to get, get, I don't want to get up and make, make the wrong decision out, out of good intentions. I get you. I get you. Um, I saw you in real life uh, in a bar just before lockdown, I think it was. No, it wasn't. It was just before Edinburgh last year. Um, I haven't seen you since. It's always nice to see you out and about. Uh, And uh, I remember bumping into you in Edinburgh and seeing you over the years. Um, I'm not a huge TV guy. um, And everyone is always, like, recommending TV. and I'm always sort of like, I don't have the time to watch like eight eight hours of whatever series it is. Um, and I never, I never fancy it. And then somehow throughout this year of lockdown, I discovered Challenge TV. And <laughs> I started watching uh, old episodes of, it, beca- it was Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? Um, and through osmosis over the years, I am aware of the chase. I have seen the chase, bits and pieces of the chase. There's always a different section of the chase that's on TV when I've seen it. So I'd never had it solid in my head what an episode of the chase actually was like. But I got through Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? And then they stopped showing that. And then you'd switch channels. I think that's on Sony. You switch channels and then the chase is on um, Challenge TV. Then I started watching whole episodes of that. And I, I'm addicted to it. And I watch The Chase every night, and you are my favourite well, Oddly chaser. enough, it's like that with me and Uncle. Uh, in, in the, <laughs> when I first watching Uncle, I'm never quite sure whether it was a bad uncle or good uncle that was going to turn up this week. i never, never quite sure where I was in the narrative. And then you just get addicted to the whole thing. And you just go, oh, he's like all of us. He's both bad and good. Um, yes, but the benefit of you, of, of Uncle, is that I'm in it every week, whereas... You know, it's always uh, on a knife edge up until the chaser gets introduced, and then you go, "Oh, for fuck's sake, it's Sean Wallace!" But uh, you—that gives me an idea. Five different uncles. Five different uncles. <laughs> Don't ever try to um, you're also my girlfriend's dad's uh, uh, favourite celebrity. Um, uh, so, it's girlfriend's brother. It's never my girlfriend's, girlfriend's brother. My girlfriend's dad. Absolutely fucking loves you. Uh, so, um, you know, if you fancy saying hello to Paul at some point, you can just go for it. But, um, hello, Paul. Get out of the way. You've made his, you've made his life. Um, so, 
to chase. Tell us about how. Um, what I what I was what I'd also say is. Um, now I'll talk to you about that in a minute. How did the chase come about? Well, I wasn't on it from the beginning, so I don't know. Um, Two thousand and nine ish, ITV stuff. Want to do a rival to the Eggheads, and they picked Sean and Mark. Um, very good choices. Mark being the most arrogant quizzer on the planet and Sean being the only black one of Mastermind. They're good headline, they're good headline grabbers. Then they decided to bring a woman on and they brought Anne. And then in two, what actually happened was in the, a very cold autumn Saturday morning, I turned up to an academic buzzer quiz at Oxford University. Uh, and we played against their team and I was the man of that particular match which meant that three months later when ITV said to them, we're going to get a fourth chaser, is there anyone you'd recommend? They all recommended me. Um, and I hadn't applied for a job in a million years, really. So I was a bit in a quandary as to whether when Mark sent me a message, the piece sent me a message going, I think you ought to get in touch because they're very interested in you. Uh, but I got in touch and what was really, really great was doing an audition and then finding out they didn't think I was funny enough for the show. It's really good as a professional comedian. <laughs> uh, I mean, never mind Kate Copstick or Steve Bennett. That's a proper review. We don't think he's funny enough for a show that's not actually a comedy show. <laughs> uh, uh, but my agent got them to come and see me at the Soho Theatre. It was all kind of one-way traffic after that. This was 2011. Um, and uh, what a lot of people don't know is that we all know each other. Um, because there's a netherworld, a sort of, uh, you know, first rule of quiz club, don't talk about quiz club, sort of netherworld of tournaments and hand-to-hand quiz combat that we all got to know each other from. Um, and by the time I was sending an email to the producers saying, please can I have the job, uh, I was, I think, probably ranked about the same as Anne in the, in the uh, quiz ranking. So I knew I was good enough. It was just a question of whether I was what they were looking for. And you're not going to believe it, but it turns out that uh, uh, openly gay Asian comedian was exactly what television was looking for. (laughs) I think it's extraordinary that I would have assumed because you have the background in stand-up that it's almost like, oh, it's like a done deal because you're already, you know, you've got all those skills already. You're kind of in, I guess, those stand-up is a sort of funny where it fits into the, the showbiz realm. But it's, it would almost feel that it was... complicated than that, though, isn't it? Because they need, on the show, it's part panto. So they need to know what they're doing mm. with you. Because I don't... Mm. I mean, you know, I don't... I don't you know... The, the brown bummer was, um, was thrown <laughs> out as a possibility <laughs> uh, relatively early on. But I don't have a, a main identifiable thing. And so it's, it's more about what they can do with you. And it turns out my identical thing is bad suit. <laughs> but I think you look amazing on the chase. Yeah, it's in the, beho- it's in the eye of the beholder, isn't it, Nick? Um, well, I, I, think I, you, I think you look amazing. Uh, also, you're the nicest chaser. Definitely I, the nicest one. I, I would, you're so kind. I just think you've, you've always sort of like, yeah, you might thrash them, but at the same time, and you don't always... But at the same time, you're kind of like, you're, you let them down uh, kindly, gracefully, it's, graciously. I mean, I think you might be able to identify this. I just want to be light. I felt like in the first few years of the chase, and people just go, oh, he's such a cock, he's such a this, he's such a that. Mm-hmm. I want to take all that stuff away from them. I want to take the, 
and just be a nice person. But I think the other thing is I know what the, I, I was in a few TV quizzes before I was on the chase, and I know what it's like to lose, uh, and I know what it's like to be really really excited go on to a quiz show, and then find out that two questions later you're off. Yeah. Uh, because of a couple of questions, and I kind of know what what that feels like. So I don't really want to gloat. I only I only ever gloat if they've been a bit too cocky, and that's like two in every hundred episodes. I just like to play the game. When I, I'm, I'm the guy who examines the game conditions, examines the standard of the players, and tries to work out how best to beat them. That's that's my for me. That's my job. And also yes. to make make them feel comfortable because if they're not answering any questions, that's shit telly. Hmm. Yeah, and they um, play better. But uh, would, is it, so. So going back to the fact that you're creating kind of like Bond villains, right? Um, it, but you have these characters that are sort of like Bond villains, right? And like what Nat was saying was that you know because you're a comedian, it kind of like it's sort of like if you're good at quizzes and you're so good at quizzes, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're great on telly, you know. And so to have, like, the safety curtain of having a character built around you, you know, like the Beast, you kind of like go, oh, yeah, great. And it gives me a format in which I can hide behind this character and answer the questions. Whereas surely you need a character less than the others, right? Um, it's difficult to say because when I joined, the, the, the show was steeped in panto and it's evolved since then. We, we, we were encouraged to be as nasty. I mean, I've seen the Beast set down having a producer tell him we need to be more nasty, we need to be more nasty. And all that's gone now, and I'm really glad it's gone, because whatever you think of these um, uh, contestants, they're human beings, uh, and and they're not part of the panto. They're just trying to win a quiz. They didn't come Mm. onto the chase to go, oh, you're a fat man, beastie boy, aren't you? They came on the the show to answer questions. Yeah, like that comedian, like that comedian from Oxford, from ten years ago, uh, who I watched last night. <laughs> he had some singers up his sleeve that he just unleashed, and it was kind of like that's a bit unnecessary. <laughs> I have no idea who you're talking about. Yeah, he, uh, he was a comedian from Oxford that was on the chase, and I'd never heard of him, but he was mean, and I thought to the beast, and I was like, well, come on. This, uh, just answer your questions. Get get the money. Oh, we don't mind people being nasty to us because it means that people want us to win. If, sure. if people are nasty to us, then that's great because it means that we get to gloat more and gloat more justifiably. In fact, I got one once. I came out and this woman said, I've seen you do comedy and you're not as funny as you think you are. Uh, and at the end, when I... Um, when I won, I just said, oh, that, that made me even more happier than my five-star reviews or, or something, something like that. <laughs> Insufferably smug at the end. Well, there was, there was one that took the lower offer and got back and then said, so seeing, who are you? Who are you? Who are you? To me, as, though he, as though he'd done something amazing by taking the low, low offer. <laughs> and, and then in the final, he got Cherry Lo- Cher, Cher Lloyd and Cherry Blair mixed up. In the final. <laughs> when, you when you do the final chase, especially when it's like a celebrity one, do you ever feel like like it never feels like you're backing down? You're always seem to be putting a hundred percent in. But it's like where, where's the kind of skin in the game? Because does it feel like do you ever feel like I should let them win? The, or it, the format of it I always find that's the bit where I think 
especially when it's like a celebrity one for charity or something, do you ever feel that you should be holding back or is your job always to just try I mean, and I've win? got a contract that says that I've got to try my best at all times. Right. Uh, but I didn't get onto the chase to hold back. I got onto the chase because most quizzes are smug, narcissistic uh, idiots who uh, care for nothing more than showing themselves to be the best as possible at all times. <laughs> so there's no, there's no mercy from me. The way I look at it is if their charities don't get their money, the way TV works, another person's charity will eventually get the money. Hmm. Um, you, are, you talking, are you talking about specifically about the celebrity contestants? Yeah. I hate, because... it, when the, I hate it when the real life contestants, one of them hasn't seen, well, if one of them hasn't seen their granddaughter in 35 years, it's like, oh, God. Am I really, really, really. But then life isn't about living your dreams because you played in a quiz. Um, you know, no one when they're sorting out their life options goes, "Oh, don't forget, I'm going to win some money on that quiz show, so that'll fund that." Right. Uh, no. Right. Yeah. 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 The extra gifts that you pick up, extra bits of luck that you pick up. I mean, I've had a lot of friends who've been, as you can imagine, have appeared on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire uh, as contestants, and some of them have gone insane with the expectation that they're going to get a load of money, and find it really difficult to cope cope with the come down when they don't. Because in their head, because they know they're good enough to win a million, they think they're going to win at least 125,000. And when it doesn't happen, you know, quiz shows are not real life. Quiz shows are extra Christmas presents. Extra, uh, but when so, you... Sorry, go on. So you can't spend money that you haven't won. Uh, but I'm certainly more sorry for the um, normal contestants than the, uh, the celebrity contestants. I do, but I do, I do. That was one of my questions as well. It was, it's kind of like when you watch it and you, you see that there are, you know, there was an, there was an old woman and, uh, and a blind man and they were the last two contestants and whoever the chase was, he hit him so fucking hard and you just kind of like go, will you just ease up a little? I think there was like two seconds left to go and they were up for winning like 30 grand and they didn't win it. And it was just kind of like you go, oh, oh, so yeah, that was that was the question really. It was just kind of like it was, it's a job, and we want to do the job as well as possible. And to, how I look at it, there's an episode that I really, really like, where a team are playing for sixty-five thousand uh, or something like that, some big money, and I've got two seconds to go, and if I get this next question in two seconds, I've won, and I stop them getting the sixty-five thousand. And the question starts, Joe Dury, and I shout out, tennis, and I'm right. But they don't know if it's in time. And then follows an excruciating 15, 20 minutes where uh, they find out who got there first on the videotape. And they come to me at the end and go, I'm really, really sorry, Paul, but you didn't make it in time. And I said, thank God for that. Which is me basically going, I've given everything I've given. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've, I've done everything that was meant for me, and it wasn't quite enough, and that will do. But I was never going to not shout out Joe Jury. I was going to yeah. do everything I could to try and win the... I was going to do anything I could to try and win the game. But at the end, when it went to the, when it went to the photo finish, I was actually delighted to lose. If, if that makes any kind of sense. All yeah, because, and you can, you, can see, you can see that when you're playing. Um... Yeah, you really. Are. I mean, we talk. Me, me and my girlfriend talk to each other when we're watching it, and we're always saying he's so nice to them, uh, even when he, even when he thrashes them. Yeah, but let's be honest. We're both we're both comedians, mate. 
nice is our front. You know, just because you're nice to people doesn't mean. You're nice. <laughs> just because you're nice to people doesn't mean it's the it's it's the image that you choose to portray of yourself. Yes, I'm a cunt. Um, <laughs> Going back to those very early days, then, were you ever concerned? Was there a thing where you thought doing the chase might undermine your the audience you've built up through comedy? I didn't know. I had no idea. Um, and it was the first. I've got. I've reached that happy medium. I think. Uh, I mean, we can talk about the reasons for that in a bit. Um, but for the first two or three years of touring, it was quite tough because I'm not openly gay on the chase. Even though I'm openly gay in my comedy, I'm not openly gay on the chase. I mean, it's, or I choose not... It's really difficult to say. It's not an issue. It's not, it's not a thing that's made... It's not a big thing on the chase. I don't, I don't go, ooh, uh, I don't do innuendos. Or, I mean, I have made comments in the far... There's a question on toad in the hole that I got wrong. Uh, and I did a pun on the phrase toad in the hole. Um, and um, nobody noticed. Um, <laughs> so there's been, there's been mo- moments here and there. But, but, but none, of the, none of the chasers are coming on and talking about their sexual preferences. No, but I am, I am on stage. That's what I'm saying. So yes. People get the wrong idea about me as a comedian. If they think that you're on a daytime show, they think you're going to be a daytime telly sort of comedian. And I'm absolutely nothing of the sort. And it was quite hard. I think over 20 minutes in a club is fine. In 20 minutes over a club, you, uh, you're, they're, they're there for you. They'll start listening at the beginning and they'll finish listening at the end. And if they don't like you, there's another comedian coming on afterwards. But also in a club, you are bang, bang, bang. It's very joke-heavy. It's, it's, it's very... We don't really care who you are as long as your jokes are funny, and, and, and it's fine. But in a, in, a, um, in a solo show, they're kidnap victims. You, 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 you've got them for 90 minutes. And if they begin... If, they, if you start with, I'm gay, and they go, oh, God, not another fudge packer. Um, that's going to be a very long 90 minutes for them. A very sure. long... Uh, whereas 20 minutes is absolutely fine. So I, l- I learned the hard way to uh, smooth out. Uh, you, learn a lot of, you, l- you learn a lot about your comedy when you move up to regular 60, 90 minutes about wh- how you might be overplaying things or uh, ba- ba- banging a drum until the drum is bro- broken mm. and, and to mix up the, t- mix up the tone and, and, and the nature of what you're doing a lot more. Uh, but... That, that came with doing very mainstream... I do a lot of very mainstream audiences. Uh, yeah. And I, tr- I, bring, I, don't, I don't really tone down what I do. I just vary it up and swear less. It's interesting. I hadn't thought of it in that way, really, but I hadn't thought of it that you... For your solo shows that you're touring, I guess you will have lots of people who are going because they're fans of The Chase and they won't necessarily be know you from the comedy you've done now. Yeah. I mean... I did a show in uh, Southport in autumn 2019. It couldn't have gone any better. And I got a review on one of those um, customer review things, you know, where they go, give you a star rating for this evening. Yes. So really tedious. All he talked about was his life, his family, and his relationships and his illness. <laughs> and I'm like, what the hell were you expecting <laughs> me to talk about on stage? Uh 
my, my show was about getting married in the same year as getting diagnosed with Parkinson's. I'm not entirely sure what you were expecting me to talk about on stage. <laughs> but I suppose That's you do have those, those touring theatre things, don't you, where you might have someone from a game show maybe or something doing a kind of one-man show that's probably part quiz of, or so I don't know. And I guess maybe they were thinking it was something totally different. I don't. It's it's it's, it's frustrating because I know that my live comedy is really good, uh, and that younger people will enjoy the show because it's broadly accessible even if they don't get all the references. But I don't mm. seem to get many younger people coming to my show. I'm a fifty, I'm a fifty-year-old comedian playing to a fifty-year-old crowd, and I, I think that I believe very strongly I've got more appeal than that. Um, but especially. I'd like to see some of the... Let's go and see the guy that was really shit on Taskmaster crowd. Um, <laughs> um, I'd like to see more of them coming to, coming to see me. At the moment, it's still very much... Uh, love Bradley. I love Anne. I, lo- I love Anne. How's Anne? <laughs> love Bradley. Anne's lovely. Uh, especially most <laughs> interested as well among, amongst the gay male audience. I don't even exist. It's Anne, 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 Anne. <laughs> There's nothing the gay men like more than a sneery, contemptuous woman. <laughs> how, does it, how does it work? Um, right, so you're, oh, do you have, like, a, de- a day each where you film five episodes of The Chase and then Anne will do Tuesday and then Sean will do Wednesday? No, or... nothing like that at all. It's three episodes a day, and as much as possible, they like to do one chaser per episode. So that, but, it's, but it's tough because me, me and Sean live in London, Anne lives in Manchester, Mark lives in Hereford, Jenny lives in Bolton. It's tough. But... Uh, it's also a tough show to record. And in, 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 in that, um, get you to do more than one in a day is really, is genuinely quite hard work. Yeah. It's more, it's more the nervous energy that you go through trying to work out if you're going to win this episode than anything else. And do you get nervous? Um, not anymore. I think I've proved myself. I think... I think that I was on a quest to prove myself to the British public that I was a really good quizzer. Yeah. And I think that I've done that now, and I've made my point. And as a result, the, 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 uh, the, the nerves are off my shoulders a, a bit, and I just, I just really enjoy it. Um, my, biggest, my biggest thing is that I don't want anybody to make a decision as to whether Parkinson's is affecting my quizzing, other than me, because I, I know my brain better than anyone. And I, well, I think the thing that really hurts is when you lose a game and you know you lost it because it was just not what, not your day. Yeah. And you see someone on Twitter going, oh, um, I've seen the Parkinson's has, has, has sorted him out. And it's like, no, mate. You do not know what's going on behind the scenes. Uh, I am operating, operating as a quiz at the highest level every, every week of my life. Um, and the, this, is, this is what the shame about the underworld that we live in is it's not a publicised underworld. But um, I'm, you know, I'm knocking it out of the park still. So you got diagnosed with Parkinson's uh, in 2019, mm-hmm. um, and you're, how have you how have you found that has affected um, uh, the way you're working on? Because your new show is uh, Paul Stinner's TV Showdown, uh, yep. which I watched yesterday. Um, how have you found uh, 
the Parkinson's has impacted on uh, your ability to do that? Um, mentally, I'm strong. Uh, and also, I don't know whether it's the diagnosis or the medication, but at some stage towards the end of 2019, I don't know whether it's like this sort of, uh, the reins being taken off because you're now living your life on your own terms completely, or whether it was actually the medication. But I just got more creative. I just started writing more jokes, uh, more, I was, I was, and taking chances and uh, talking continuously. And I just started taking chances uh, in a way that I'd never really done before. And so I think sometimes it's, it's, been a, it's been a positive, it's been a positive thing. But I'd written a show for last year that I'd taken around and that was, it was going to be my big, oh, look at him, he's so brave, so brutally frank about his struggles with Parkinson's. Oh, give the man an award that year. So it was meant to be my year last year. Uh, and it never happened because of everything that happened. I never got to tour the show. Uh, and the show is, my, is the, the thing that I'm, the show that I wrote about Parkinson's is the thing that I'm most proud of having written in my life. Uh, and it's, I just can't wait to get back on the stage and be the comedian I want to be. Because, you know, that's for all that I love being a quizzer. I'm a, I'm a stand-up first and foremost. That's that's what I that gives me more joy than anything else, um, and I just want to get back on stage. So that's that's interesting. So in terms of like ambition or where you'd want to to be, you've got this kind of dual career that you've sort of very successful in two things. Would you prefer it to have those worlds meet a bit more, or do you have like a plan, or do you ever think of your life in those ways, or are you just kind of roll with the punches and whatever comes up? Very much roll with the punches. I'm very much aware. The, the, the quiz world, I, I occupy two quiz worlds. I occupy the television quiz world and the quiz world. They're two very different things, and there's no reason why anyone who's watching the first should even be aware of the second. There's, there's, just no, uh, there's no reason why that, that should take place. Um, and I spend far longer in that second quiz world, the one of online Zoom quizzes and, and pub social rooms and this, that, and the other, than I do the chase. The chase isn't like a 40, 50-day-a-year job. And the other the other parts of quizzing take a long long time, but it's dull. Is these events are dull in the eyes of the beholder, um, and so I can't expect necessarily the general public to realise or give a shit that I'm knocking it out of the park. Um, what I quite like, however, is for fewer people. I don't want the chase to be an albatross around my neck. I don't like it when people talk about the chase when I've introduced a completely different subject. This this is one of the things that uh, I get really irritated by. I had my double vaccine today. Do you think the beast has had a double vaccine yet? That sort of, <laughs> um, uh, that, that, you know, struggling a bit with Parkinson's. Well, ring Bradley up. He'll cheer you up. Um, <laughs> this idea that you, you have a life outside of the chase is something I'd like to encourage people to think about a lot more. Uh, and, well, people, and people think I have a nephew. And it's kind of like... <laughs> Uh, and, and and I don't. And people and it's like when you do stand up, you know, people come out and I start talking about whatever it is my show's about, and people are just confused, thinking, "When's he going to bring the kid out?" And it's just sort of like <laughs> it's 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 weird being it's weird spending 
your whole life kind of doing door-to-door sales in terms of stand-up, where you go to venues, you win over audiences, and you do it a room at a time, and then to have something that is beamed into people's TVs. Yeah, that obviously, it, go on. I mean, it dwarfs everything, doesn't it? TV yeah. dwarfs everything. I didn't realise necessarily the degree to which no one was ever going to walk up to me and go. Um, actually, I'll tell you what. This morning in the vac- in the waiting room after the vaccine, this middle-aged West Indian lady said to me, um, she said, is anyone, uh, I-, I imagine you get people coming up to you saying you look like the guy on the chase. That's what she said to me. <laughs> uh, uh, and I said, um, Sorry? And she went, there's this guy, Paul Sinha, on the chase. And I said, oh, is that the uh, former doctor turned comedian uh, who's been on the show since 2011 and is known as the Cineman Sarcasm in a Suit? And she looked at me and went, yeah, that's the one. (laughs) 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 And eventually when it twigged that she was talking to me, she said something really not, she had like 10 questions about the chase. And then she said, um, I really like your stuff on Radio 4. And you could have knocked me down with a feather. You could have, you know, it's just really nice from time to time for people to just go, actually, I know you for something, for something else. Mm. Because the chase is not the only thing I do. It's the thing that's seen by the most number of people. It's not the only thing I do. Someone, someone liked a tweet of mine the other day. I was in a pub in uh, Whitechapel. Um, and a lad just said, I like what you tweeted this morning. And I'm like, that, it's, it's those moments that you kind of treasure, uh, where somehow or another you've, you've managed to hit, uh, re- reach out to someone at a, at a, level, a level that isn't television. Hmm. Because anybody can do it through television. Uh, so, but going back to television, what's it like... Uh, <laughs> being on the chase that was a joke um, <laughs> <what's>, <laughs> oh, it's really exciting really exciting it's, it's, it's a dream come true Brad, what's, what's it like what's it like being uh, the um, hosting your own show after being on the chase now having your own show it was a whirlwind I, I mean it was really, really like beginning of September I first had inklings that people might be after me uh, within about six weeks, it, the contracts were signed. It was there was very much a moment of a little tear came to my eye when I saw the studio and saw my my name up there. Um, and I'm trying to choose my words carefully, it was certainly it, it, everyone should go through the process of having all the jokes you've written removed from the script, piece bit 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 by bit, um, and. Um, other than that, I'm, 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 couch, I'm couching my words. I'm couching my words very carefully. Um, I think celeb, celebrity culture is something that I feel a little bit uncomfortable with, on the grounds that I don't feel I necessarily belong. It's not really my. When I go to these parties and whatever, I don't feel that anybody is particularly looking to talk to me, or uh, I've, I've, I've appeared on their horizon as somebody to go and say hello to at a party, or this, that, and the other. I feel I feel quite low, clinging onto the bottom rungs of the ladder, uh, and that's why this hosting your own show is a bit weird. 
Because I remember the comedians. I think there were a lot of people going, who's this guy? Uh, and it's, it's nice to have, when you're in, in inverted commas, bantering with celebs. It's nice to have an in where there's something that you two have got in common or something. something. Mm. Um, and there were off, there were off, often there was a struggle to get an in. I mean, I did go and say hello to all of them before the show and introduce myself, this, that and the other. But I think and I hope that Series 2 is going to be very, very different because it was really painful to go onto Twitter after show and go and see people having a go at me and you being aware of the process of how the show worked and how the show came into being mm-hmm. and you just wanted to go, hang on a second, this was not my fault. Um, and I'm hoping that there's more creativity and ambition in the second show because I'm not Mr. Saturday Night. With, with, the, um, with the greatest will in the world, you hire, you hire me to tell jokes. Uh, you, don't, you don't hire me to do, do a Bruce Forsyth slash Jason. I'm, I'm not a triple threat. Uh, I'm, I'm, barely, I'm barely a single threat. Uh, I'm just a bloke who, who knows a lot of shit and writes a lot of jokes. That, those are the two things I do. I write a lot of jokes and I know a lot of shit. You've got to harness those two things if you're going to have me hosting a TV show. And I felt that, I felt that, uh, yeah, it was an interesting... And the other thing to remember is it's lockdown. And it was during a stage of lockdown where the rug was being pulled under our feet all the time. A number of times we had a, a plan and Boris Johnson said something in Parliament and suddenly that plan didn't exist anymore. Um, it, was, it was last winter when no one knew what was going on from one week to another. Uh, and I think with more stability with where we are uh, and less unexpected developments um, emanating from the Houses of Parliament, we should be able to make, make a, a show that's more consistent in tone. Well, I thought you were great. And um, I thought you uh, maintained a, um, uh, an edge to you that you don't normally see in kind of uh, those sort of... It was when you told Rob Beckett that you weren't friends, you were colleagues. Um, I really I thought, enjoyed You that. never see that. Yeah, I thought that was great. I thought it was great. And the great thing uh, that he really enjoyed that line as well because we, we get on with each other. And, um, yeah. and in fact, the day after I got dumped in 2016, um, 2015, he thrashed me on Celebrity Chase and I wrote a whole, I wrote a whole routine about what it's like to be thrashed by another comedian and celebrity chase the day after you got dumped. Um, and so I, I, showed, I showed him that routine because he didn't know I was doing it. Um, and um, so we, we, we get with each other very well. Yeah. That's the thing is you need, that, you need that understanding, don't you? You need to know, you need to know where the, the barriers are. When I do, I don't yes. know if you've done Would I Lie to You? Um, but when I did the Would I, would I Lie to You? I'm just suddenly aware that there are three exquisitely funny human beings who know each other inside out. They know each other's boundaries inside out. And it's really hard to, to, to tiptoe into that group and go, hello, um, and try and, try and, try and ban- banter with people that are so mm. used to who each other are. Mm. But when you watch old, there's old Would I Lie to you that are on 
quite late at night. And it's funny that when you watch early ones, it's not a show that's quite found its feet yet. And now it feels very confident, but you can see it in those things where they're less, they don't know what the boundaries are slightly. Whereas now it feels like it's such a mainstream BBC one show that it's, it's kind of like a juggernaut. But when you watch the early ones, they're not really like that. But I think, I think um, when, you, when you spend the whole of lockdown watching uh, the Sony channel and Challenge TV, you have like these uh, nuggets where you see, you know, the beast on who wants to be a millionaire winning £35,000. And you're thinking, is that all? Um, and last night, uh, I think the very first episode of The Chase was on. And 50% of the thing was Bradley explaining the rules to everyone really slowly. <laughs> and it's just kind of like, it was so surreal. Yeah, just kind of like going. There's a million dollar man thing going on with the facts about the, facts about the, uh, the chaser. <laughs> Those are the really yes, ones. where the student, where it was, it was Sean, uh, and he was stood in the middle, and it was very brightly lit, and there were pillars that were blocking the actual um, display on the back. And uh, Bradley was just taking it step by step with everyone. And it just seemed to take fucking ever. And because I had to sort of like teach myself the, the rules by watching episodes, and I'd be like, oh, it's this bit and it's this bit, I forget that there was a learning curve as I watched the show. When you go back oh, to the yeah. first episode. I mean, I mean, it's interesting you say that because the show that I, the show that it, as it is now is so different from what the one I joined in series four, because what happened in series four is we just kept winning, we just kept winning, uh, and they realised they had to vary the questions up more, otherwise we'd just keep winning, and it's from series four onwards that you now get more, far more Marvel superheroes, computer games, video games, uh, mm. stuff that isn't necessarily. On a middle-aged quizzes on a middle-aged quizzes agenda, they had they had, they had to vary it up. So and for series one, two, and three, honestly, if you sat me down on an, and say well, maybe watch any of those episodes, in the final chase, I'd get between ninety-five and one hundred percent of the questions right. It's not like that now. It's 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 not like that, and that's why you, you don't see the really 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 high scores that you used to see. Mm. Um, 23 is about the limit now, whereas back in the first four series, there was 25s, 26s, 27s, and 28s. 23 is about the limit now. The game's changed. We should really talk to you about some of the things we asked you to come up with, things you're a fan of, if we haven't done that yet. Um, But we played your song earlier, which was Impossible Dream by Carter USM. Why did you pick that? I mean, it's obviously not the greatest record ever made, isn't it? There's no... There's no doubt about that. My, um, it's, uh, my, my relationship with Carter USM first involves ignoring their entire musical oeuvre when I was a student, not realising how good they were and just not, not, not being quite cool enough as a student to just, for them to be on my uh, agenda. And then I did a gig for Michael Legg. I think you've probably done it. One of those homeless charity uh, all-day, all-day, 24-hour... All-day Edinburgh. Uh, all-day Edinburgh. Uh, and I did a blog about it, and I didn't know who was singing songs at the end was actually Jim Bob from Carter. I, I wrote in my blog, and, and, and this guy started doing Carter cover versions at the end. And I was so, um, so <laughs> mortified. Uh, uh, well, I think it was a... Um, it might have been Stuart McConey that sent me a message saying, you do realise you've blundered. Um, and, and so but when we decided to get married... We wanted to mix up 
uh, me and Oliver wanted to mix up the, the playlist. And I thought it'd be really good to have Impossible Dream as the last song, because it's a big emotional thing. But also there's this line, when your arm's feeling weary, that was a bit Parkinson's-y. And I thought, we'll, we'll get people to cry. We'll, we'll get people to cry at the end of the wedding. That, that's what we'll do. <laughs> and we had ambitions to um, perform it ourselves, Ollie on the keyboard and me singing. The idea was we played the last song, everything went black, uh, and then on the screens it would say, please go to the upstairs bar. And then, and then the lights would come on and me and Ollie would perform um, The Impossible Dream. And uh, in the afternoon on the Saturday, we realised neither of us had remembered to practice or learn the words. <laughs> or, or do, we we realised we'd just forgotten. Uh, and so the song came on at the end and it's just me and Ollie standing on a chair uh, just going and it's a clip it's a clip that's been in the media uh, and it's, 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 it's just summed up the madness of uh, an overambitious wedding really well and Jim Bob himself sent me a message on Twitter saying that's a really nice story um, so it's, it's 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 not because the song's amazing. I do really think it's a really good song. It's more what it means to me, which is that the end of the, the magnificent end to a magnificently overambitious wedding. <laughs> but it's nice that you wanted them to cry at the end of the wedding. So that oh, is the well, Edinburgh comedy show writer in you that's gone right. That's how I plan it. I plan a whole. Absolutely. <laughs> Edinburgh is life. I'm not denying. I'm not denying the uh, the accusation you're making there of being tacky and emotive. <laughs> do you think that, that actually knowing how to put together a show helps you organise a wedding? I think so, yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, there were three bits to the wedding, and they all had bits and bobs that were really good fun. And, you know Mark Silcox? Yes. Yeah, he, he, was, he was Oliver's best man. Uh, and it was, we, we hardly know Mark. Oliver thought it'd be funny to have a best man that he hardly knew. And he, 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 he emailed Mark and said, would you mind doing a speech at our wedding? And Mark just said, yeah, that's fine. I'll, I'll do a speech at the wedding. And he was an absolute star. He, um, he, he said it. He, just, he, took, he, he did five minutes on physics. <laughs> <laughs> he spoke for five minutes on physics to an increasingly bewildered and drunk crowd and then sort of one... Once they realised that he knew what he was doing, once that once that it clicked, um, it was great. It was genuinely joyous. We, we uh, yeah, we, we decided to have a wedding like no one else's wedding. It was great. That's the beauty. That sounds amazing. <laughs> he he was uh, magnificent. Well, Mark Silcox is fantastic. Um, right, right, if you look, got... look at my Twitter profile, you'll see the evidence. My, the, the main pick on my Twitter photo is. My three best men and Oliver's three best women, and one of them is Mark's or, or best man. And <laughs> um, we have run out of time. How dare <laughs> you! I had so much to say about Die Hard. So much that hasn't been. I know. Um, uh, yeah, we've run out of time. What are we? What are we going to do, Nathaniel? So we'll do better or worse. Yeah, all right, okay, cool. This is the last so, one of this series. 
Uh, and this game is better or worse, Paul, and you have to say whether the next person is better or worse than the person before, based entirely on my opinion to score points. On your opinion? On my opinion. I haven't researched it. Oh, no. So you, oh. Can't, you can't actually have done... You don't gain anything from being a top quizzer in some ways. I think also, I think, uh, Paul, you are the last contestant uh, of this season. Yeah, so uh, you're going to be so up against all the other guests we've had in the past year. Okay, the first name is Sammy Davis Jr. But is Michael Douglas better or worse than Sammy Davis Jr.? Worse, no doubt about that. He is worse. Harrison Ford, better or worse than Michael Douglas? Better. I don't think that any any answer makes more sense than better. Sure, he's, he's, he's been a good man. Yeah, better, correct. He's the only major film star whose name is two different US presidents' surname. <laughs> Michelle Pfeiffer, better or worse than Harrison Ford? Worse. I mean, even the are you heterosexual question, I have no idea what the answer is. Michelle Pfeiffer, better or worse than Harrison Ford? I, I think can't. the instinct. Uh, I'm going to go worse. Correct, worse. Peter Cushing, better or worse than Michelle Pfeiffer? Better. No one likes no one likes Peter Cushing. No one dislikes Peter Cushing. It's better. Better, correct. Ben Affleck, better or worse than Peter Cushing? Worse. worse. Correct. Mel Brooks, better or worse than Ben Affleck? Better. Better. Uh, Morgan Freeman, better or worse than Mel Brooks? Now that is tough. It's tough, it's better. It's better. We're now talking about two absolute legends. Uh, but I think that this goes to Morgan better. I think worse than Brooks. Wow, you are fucking fucked, mate. What? Mel Gibson, better or worse than Morgan Freeman? Worse. Tough. I mean, really tough. I mean, how would you even begin to uh, judge uh, Morgan Freeman against a racist anti-Semite? And domestic violence abuse. I mean, so where are you going with this, Paul? I think that Mel Gibson's worse. He is worse. <laughs> yeah, that's very Lucas. good news for you. Very George good news <laughs> George Lucas, better or worse than Mel Gibson? I think we need to move away from the Mel Gibson. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm going to say better. Correct. Ridley Scott, better or worse than George Lucas? Better. Worse. Oh, Really? Eight. Yeah. It's an eight, though. You've got an average... You've got a very average eight, Paul. You've got an eight, which means that you're not as good as Jen Brister, Thomas Coombs, John Coleshaw, Tess Dillia, Sari Lyons, Jason Manfred, Joe Scudelli with ten, David Dill, Ken Cheng, Mike Drucker, Harry Hill, Dominic Monaghan, Luke Morley with nine. But you are as good as Matthew Crosby, Susie Dent, Charles Eston, Wayne Federman, Henry Fraser, Eddie Hearn, David Hutworth, Jason Isaac, Simon West, Amanda Ladd-Jones, John Niven, Magical Bones, Samantha Morton, Matt O'Kine, Miranda Raisin, Griff Priest, James Chris, Star, Baroness, Sadie Varsi, Stu Whiffen, Michael J. White. Uh, Gillian White, Samantha Wynn with eight. And you're better than Charlie Borman, Richard Herring, James King, Ludie Lynn, Henry Normal, Janet Varney, Johnny Vegas with seven, Gary Delaney, Nelford Star, Frank Harper with six, and poor old Dave McLean with five. I'm guessing Richard, Richard Herring has written a very long blog explaining why seven is an injustice. Uh, I don't think he gave it a second thought. I think he probably <laughs> just finished and got on with his life. Um, Paul, thank you so much thank for coming for on coming and our show. That's an absolute pleasure. Congratulations to your new show, and uh, and uh, good luck with the rest of lockdown. Uh, thanks, everyone, for listening. Uh, 
look after yourselves. We're almost out of the woods, but we're not there yet. Uh, uh, wash your hands, I suppose. And um, <laughs> I've got. Uh, we'll see you next week for a brand new season of the endless, never-ending fan club. <laughs> <laughs>